Welcome everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I want to tell you tonight a little bit about a special uh, American writer and activist and educator named Jonathan Kozel, whose work has focused on public education in the United States over many, many decades. In his earliest step of his career, he became a teacher in the Boston public schools. And shortly thereafter, he was fired for teaching a poem by Langston Hughes, an experience he describes in great detail in a book called Death at an Early Age. And from that moment on, Jonathan Kozel became deeply involved in the civil rights movement. He's been working with children in inner city schools for more than 40 years. He's been writing about the urgency of creating a public education system that reflects a commitment to racial and social justice. In the summer of 1996, Jonathan Kozel wrote in a Jewish publication called The New Menorah. He shared these words. I often feel that the children I meet, even in the poorest places, have a spiritual cleanness about them that makes them seem like messengers from somewhere else. Even when children are surrounded by enormous suffering and sickness, their capacity to affirm life in the midst of death is a miracle that refreshes the world. Someone, he said, I don't know whom, once remarked, if you seek God, look for a child. He said, I've been looking for God in the faces of children for 30 years. In our sacred myth of the Torah's revelation on Sinai, before God was willing to share the narrative and norm-filled blueprint of a just and equitable world, God asks for guarantors from the nation. And rejecting the people's suggestions that the elders or the prophets serve as guarantors of the Torah's message of freedom and of dignity, God waits for a more reliable offer. Finally, the children are offered as guarantors of the Torah. God accepts and the Torah is revealed, but not before God is comforted by the assurance that if there's anyone on earth who will eternally bear witness to the divine call for peace, to the divine call for justice and the pathways that lead us there, it will be the children. Last week, when we were together, I told Peter Geffen's story, which he published a few weeks ago in the Times of Israel blog, about how on April 9th in 1968, he and Mickey Schur were marching through the streets of Atlanta behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s coffin, walking next to their teacher, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and then presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy. And Peter remembers how feeling terrified by Dr. King's death and what it would mean for the future, how he turned to Rabbi Heschel, and he said, what are we gonna do now? And how Rabbi Heschel kept walking until he turned around and looked at Peter and said simply, you must teach them a Judaism that can't work. Well, recently, Peter's son, Rabbi Dan Geffen, wrote a rejoinder to that story in a message 
to his congregation where he suggested that Rabbi Heschel actually got it wrong. Dan talks about how he would so often hear his father, Peter, tell that story and so often hear the words of Rabbi Heschel as told to him by his dad. And he writes to his congregation and he, he said, I think about these words often, but today, after returning from another incredible youth organized and supported march, I'm seeing these words with a different lens. Perhaps Heschel had it in reverse. Perhaps it's time that we look to the young people to teach us a Judaism that can remake the world and not the other way around. Protesting war, promoting women's education, advocating for gun safety, sounding the alarm on climate change. Our children are leading us where we fail to take them, just as they've been leading us in the charge for civil rights since the early 1960s. What is it about our youth that enables them to muster the energy the courage and the passion for change that too many of us seem unable to harness, even, if we've, even as we've made our promises and protested our outrage. Be careful, be careful, our Talmud warns, not to promise something to a child and then not deliver it, because then the child will learn to lie. The Talmud was worried that our kids would learn from our own deceits, the destructive lessons about how to exploit people or how to get what you want by misrepresenting others and misrepresenting yourself. But the Talmud, I think, underestimated today's youth. Rather than turn to their own lies, they're forcing us to reckon with ours. A short while ago, Margaret Renkel wrote in the New York Times, the world they've inherited is deeply troubled and desperately flawed. And they see with clear eyes both the errors of earlier generations and the hope of their own. Their power lies in the undeniable moral authority of youth. They didn't cause the mess they've inherited, but they're rolling up their sleeves to clean it up. You know, there's a Yiddish saying, when a parent gives to their child, they both laugh. And when a child gives to their parent, they both cry. Rather than wallow in our own shame, it's time to listen to the call of the next generation and work together with them to make good on our pledge to leave for them and their children a sustainable world of peace and of possibility. As Margaret Renkel concluded her article, she said, you may argue that these activists are simply too young to understand the risks they're taking, but I think they know exactly what they're doing. What they're too young for is cynicism. What they're too young for is defeat. They're young enough to imagine a better future, to have faith in their own power to change the world for good. And that faith should give the rest of us more hope than we've had in years.
Kari Lazar White's most recent essays, published just six days ago. He lifts up one of the redeeming aspects of the protests gripping our country by noting the beautiful diversity of the crowds marching, people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds coming together to protest a social disease that infects some but sickens us all. You've read his extensive and impressive bio, but here's what else you should know. Kari is distinguished not just by his passion for racial justice, but by his insistence that passion for justice must be fueled from the manifold strengths and talents we together represent within the lived human experience. Kari reminds us that requires tireless activists and political, but no less so does it require poets, philosophers, and artists of all backgrounds. As a social entrepreneur, author, organizer, and widely sought after speaker and commentator, Kari uniquely taps into both outrage and optimism, concern and creativity. But above all, he's relentless when it comes to hope. I am deeply grateful to Marcy Grau for introducing me to Kari and to Brosis and for Kari's being with us tonight. Welcome. Let me... Is Kari with us? Yeah, I'm here. You can't there hear me. Oh, now I can. can now I can. I Welcome, Kari. Thank you enough for allowing me to join you in conversation. Oh, we're so happy and honored to have you. Kari, let's let's begin. Tell us a little bit about Bro Sis. So I co-founded Brotherhood Sister Soul uh, now 25 years ago. We are celebrating our 25th year in, um, you know, the this kind of year of the pandemic of, of two plagues that we're facing between COVID and, you know, focusing on the historic systemic racism in this country. And so some of our celebrations for our 25th year have been a bit muted, but um, what we do at our organization is really work in three spaces. The first is comprehensive wraparound youth development. It's really based in this concept of developing a moral and ethical code for young people, it's a rites of passage program, helping young people define what it means to be men and women, leaders, brothers and sisters in their community, um, and to put that into action. I mean, what we aspire to is to be the new SNCC of our time, um, to be the institution that's training youth to be political uh, leaders, agitators, social change makers. And so we do that through an intensive curriculum that brings a racial, gender, and 
class lens to everything that we do. It's international study in Africa and Latin America, after school care, rites of passage work, job training, but also the necessary support systems of legal representation and mental health support that young people in our community need. And so that's the first leg of the stool. The, the second leg of the stool of what we do is that we've published five books of curricula and we train educators across the country and internationally on our model, helping them to do similar work in their community. And then third is that we work uh, unflinchingly on social justice issues. So we work on reform of the criminal justice system, on policing issues, educational issues, and environmental justice issues. And what we're trying to do is change the conditions that our young people are forced to face. Uh, and, you know, I love this city in New York, but it is a city of incredible extremes and gross inequity. And so we want to change those conditions so that no longer do a third of New Yorkers live in poverty and near the poverty line and no longer are black and brown children forced to face an uh, educational system that's unequal. Kari, in, in the way you just shared with us and also in your choice to uh, have your, the main character in your book, Passage, be a, a teenager, his name is Warrior. Yes. Um, what is it that inspires you about working with youth? What is it about young people that you believe that they are the focus on which we ought to be investing our efforts and our hopes? Well, you know, I identify as a artist activist. I think when you look at the history of activism in this country, um, social change movements have been really led by young people. Um, whether you look at the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, uh, the effort to end the Vietnam War and bring down a president, uh, the Black Power movement, all of those movements were led by young people. Uh, today, they would be considered youth, folks in college, um, sometimes folks in high school. Uh, they've been central to the transformation of the country. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King was 25 years old when he led the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, it was college students that brought down Lyndon Johnson. It was women in their early 20s who really f uh, moved the women's movement forward. So that's always been something that I think I've been raised around and has inspired me. And so working with young people, one, it's the hope and the joy that they bring. It's the constant belief that they can change the world and that's inspirational. But it's also, I think, a very calculated investment that, you know, true change in this country is overwhelmingly driven from young people. And so it, it's something that I think instills in me, um, you know, confidence in the future because I see the real drive and the power and the inherent uh, belief in justice in young people. So, you know, that's really why we got into the work 25 years ago. Um, and yes, we provide all these, you know, kind of comprehensive services and we feed children, we provide 12,000 meals a year, and we provide college scholarships and we provide educational research uh, resources. But at the result, the end of that, the, the, the intention is that what will come of that will be young people who are prepared to really transform their communities in the world. Aside from the institutionalized prejudice that we are all familiar with that we're all talking about on a on perhaps on a more more personal on a per, on a more personal level what would you describe as some of the biggest obstacles some of the biggest challenges that the kids you work with face well i don't think those two things can be separated i think what our young people face um they face because of institutional racism and institutional oppression due to class so 
What I mean by that is, you know, they go to schools and invariably they have a teacher who individually cares about that child and would like nothing more than to help that child be educated. But they attend a system, a public school system that is failing the city where 70% of children graduate and only one out of three graduate college ready. Uh, they're attending a system where there are more police officers in the schools than there are guidance counselors or social workers. Um, they're walking down streets where they're being policed and over-policed um, simply because of the color of their skin. So young people at Brosis, our staff, myself included, are policed in a way that are simply uh, people are not policed uh, on, you know, the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side in the same way. Um, you know, all the men who work at Brosis have been stopped and frisked at gunpoint. Um, you know, myself included during the Bloomberg years. And so when you think about those kind of day-to-day -day realities, if you said to our young people, what are the greatest obstacles you face? They would say a inadequate educational system. They would say constantly being harassed by the police. They would say lack of access to food. They would say lack of access to employment for myself, for my family. When you talk about employment and housing and food and school, uh, and policing, you're talking about systems. And so, you know, I think really that's what they're facing. That's what, you know, we try to fight back against all the time. And, you know, that's what we're seeing right now in this kind of moment in the country in terms of responses. So Brotherhood Sister Souls approach is to be comprehensive and holistic in response to that. And that's why we provide educational resources and mental health support and guidance and legal representation and college support and anything a young person would need so that they can overcome those realities, but we also want them to understand those realities so that they can change them. And, and what are the different definitions of success that you've seen arise from all of these efforts? So, you know, we do no sifting at Brotherhood Sister Soul. There's no cost associated with joining a program. There's no grade point average. There's no parental interview. There's no documented status. All of those things would keep certain young people from joining us. Um, just as a reminder, 10% of all New York City public school students are homeless. So, you know, as we all think about that as a reality, again, in this city, that means 1.1 million children in the public school system, 110,000 are homeless children. So, you know, we're working with young people who are coming from that environment. And so what does success look like? Success looks like breaking cycles of poverty. Success looks like going off to college, we hope, but not everyone does that. I'm just as you know, proud of the young woman who became an EMT or the young man who became a firefighter as I am the young person who went to Vassar, right? They're, they're all kind of following their dreams and what they wanna do. What we really want them to do is to, to follow a moral and ethical code, again, of what it means to be men and women, to be moral and human people. I mean, I think what we teach at Brosis, you know, we know needs to be taught everywhere. Um, you know, we need uh, more ethical and moral people. We need more ethical and moral leaders. We need people who are ready to struggle with the kind of defining issues of our time and the historic realities of this nation. And so that's what we're trying to do with young people. We want them to kind of be critically aware, to be young people who can process uh, all the information and misinformation that they're forced uh, to endure. And so, yes, we want financial security, we want the ability to support their families. We want them to go off to college. We want them to be able to provide. But we also, you know, really at a base level, I think probably like every parent, you know, in this conversation this evening, we want our children to be good children. We want them then to be good young adults. And then we want them to be, you know, good women and men. Corey, when I was introducing to you earlier, I was, uh, I was mentioning that one of the unique features of your voice 
in particular is the way you call for the range of activism for civil rights, for all kinds of issues of, of justice that need, that need elevating. In particular, your call for artists and thinkers and poets and writers. Can you talk a little bit about your, your sense of how the art is such an important tool in this work, the arts? Again, I think arts are centrally a part of, you know, efforts for change. Obviously, the written word is, you know, the clearest example of that. And poetry and novel and nonfiction have, you know, changed the world. Um, you know, books have changed the world. Um, and so, you know, I think there's this concept I often reference of Chenoa Achebe, who's a, a Igbo Nigerian writer, wrote a famous novel, The Things, Things Fall Apart. Um, and he talked about in one of his essays this idea of imaginative identification. Um, and the idea, the concept is that to really um, have sympathy with another, to really feel aligned with another, to really feel connected to movements for freedom and justice that may not be your exact experience, you need imaginative identification. You can't just say you support something, but you have to almost imagine that you were that same identity, that you were that same person. Um, it's a deeper form of connection than just saying you support something. Um, and I think that that's what art can do at its best. It can bring you into another person's experience. It can allow you to read a novel and I can read Maxine Hong Kingston and imagine being a, a Chinese American girl, which is not my experience, but I, she can bring me into that world. Um, I think that that's what art can do, whether it's visual art or whether it's the written word. Um, I think it can, can transform consciousness. Um, we were very involved in the effort to reform stop and frisk in New York City, which was an unconstitutional, uh, discredited uh, racist practice uh, that resulted in millions of New Yorkers being stopped and frisked, 95% uh, of whom were completely innocent. So in the law, uh, in order to make a stop like that, it's called a Terry stop. You have to have a reasonable suspicion of a crime, something you can articulate. And so the NYPD were wrong 95% of the time. Uh, and then in 4.9 cases, they issued uh, desk ticket appearances, which you can issue for jaywalking or open containers or things that everybody on the Zoom has done. Um, I don't think they usually arrest people for rosé in Central Park or, you know, for walking, jaywalking in lower Manhattan, but that happens in Harlem. And so, you know, this was this, this violently discredited policy. And one of our alumni, Nicholas Pert, wrote an op-ed. He's this brilliant, philosophical, quiet, decent young man whose mother passed away of cancer at uh, 20 years when he was 20 years old. And so at 20, he became the father to his three younger siblings. He's that kind of young man. Um, and he wrote an op-ed called Why is the NYPD After Me? And it was published in the New York Times. It went viral. And it changed so many people's opinion who needed to move behind the gross statistics and the overwhelming numbers to hear one person's story. Uh, and it was really a transformational moment for the movement. Um, we had another group of alumni, the Peace Poets, who are poets, obviously, and they wrote an incredibly powerful song after the killing of Eric Gardner in New York called I Can't Breathe. Obviously, it would resonate today with George Floyd. And that song became the mantra of the movement. It's now sung all over the country and internationally. They wrote it. It galvanized people. Uh, those are two examples within our organization, but obviously we know you know, artist activists who inspired and terrified, you know, whether in the 60s, it was people like, you know, James Baldwin or Bob Dylan or 
Nina Simone, you know, when, when they sang or spoke, um, they spoke for justice and they spoke for freedom. And so, you know, I think that's key. And I think if you go back into the time of the labor movement, you're talking about people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and, you know, that kind of voice has always been central to movements. And so I think it inspires, but I also think it's a form of release. I think that even in the darkest, toughest times, we need art. Um, you know, I'm always reminded of the, the mantra of the Bread and Roses movement, you know, which was a labor movement led mostly by immigrant women in Massachusetts uh, at the turn of last century. And, you know, the framing was bread and roses. We need, you know, sustenance for our bodies and sustenance for our souls. And the roses was art. And I think that everyone deserves art, you know, and everyone needs art in their life. It's clear that in addition to the amazing programs and initiatives that you're offering at Brosis, that there's, there's something deep and real that the youth that you're working with are responding to. Some sense of whether it's being seen, validated, empowered. What is it that you think the kids are really responding to that allows them to, to blossom and flourish and succeed in the ways that they are? I mean, I think it's what all children and young people crave, whether in families or in places where they find home, which is, you know, support and knowing that they have elders in their life who believe in them and are supporting them and, you know, want them to be successful. I mean, I think it's about a child-centered approach. Our theory of change is to provide support, guidance, love, and education to young people. And so we don't shy away from that word love. Our whole organization operates according to it. We then teach them to form discipline and order in their life. And then we provide opportunities and access so they can develop their own agency, their own ability to advocate for themselves. Um, and I think that theory of change runs throughout all of our work. Uh, we have four themes in our logo, which are positivity, knowledge, community, and future. Um, I think we live that. We live that as an ethos. Um, we live that as a way of kind of operating and believing in community and love and future. Uh, we had to shut our doors for the first time three months ago because of the COVID crisis, but applied for and received an exemption from the city and state because our work was deemed essential. And one of the things that we're continuing to do is to feed people every Wednesday. And we provided 25,000 meals in the last three months. We didn't do that work before, but we saw a need in our community. We knew what our young people needed because of the disparate effect of COVID which is uh, killing black and brown people at a rate of two to one to white Americans. Um, and so we knew we had to respond to that. And so I think that kind of captures that we are about our community. We're about doing whatever is necessary. And our young people feel that we know we're simply, they know that we're simply there for them. And Kari, given the many fronts on which the battle for civil rights is being fought, do you have a sense of what the most urgent priorities ought to be when it comes to policy change? social change? I, mean, I think there are a lot. That would be a, this would be a long zoo. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of changes that need to occur. Um, you know, obviously there's the existential threat that is the environment, you know, that it's affecting all of us. Um, you know, the war culture in this country and the, you know, what America's become a colonial power and, uh, you know, what we have to do to restrain that. I think on a domestic level, you know, there are a few very interconnected issues that are key. The state of education, you know, in our country, the very disparate forms of education. Um, there's almost a caste system when it comes to education. 
the mantra of public-private doesn't even mean anything, right? If a child goes to Stuyvesant and another child goes to a, you know, failing public high school, the fact that they both go to public school is, is immaterial. So, you know, I think we have to look at our educational system. Uh, we obviously have to deal with massive economic inequality in this country, the fact that there's no living wage, the fact that all Americans don't have access to health care. I mean, it's part of why we're facing this crisis. Uh, the people who thought that it was not essential, the people who thought that everyone doesn't deserve health care, that it's not a human right, um, are, have now contributed due to their policy to the massive spread of this virus, uh, knowing that people can't get sufficient medical care. So I think when you look at, you know, the issues of the economy and employment and health care and education, when you look at housing um, and the homelessness crisis that's in the country, you know, budgets, as we all know, are moral documents. They're statements of policy. They're statements of priority. Um, the same cost to build an aircraft carrier is the same cost to provide every homeless person in America with $19,000 for housing. So successive presidents have chosen to buy more battlecraft carrier, I mean, aircraft carriers than to house Americans. That's a choice. Um, we should be outraged about that. And I think that the underbelly of all of these issues is the criminal justice system. Um, you know, you have a system that's increased 400% in the last 40 years. Um, America did not always incarcerate people in the way that it does now, did not always lead the world in this way over 2 million people incarcerated, um, you know, majority of whom are black and brown, almost all of whom are poor. Wealthy people don't go to prison in any numbers. Um, upper middle class people rarely go to prison in any numbers. And so, you know, to look at the result of all of these failed societal policies, the result is that we cage 2.2 million people. Um, and it's so important for folks to remember that the majority of criminal convictions, convictions in this country are, you know, for nonviolent crimes. And then also, I think we have to wrestle with what is the proper uh, response to a violent crime? You know, is it proper that if somebody robs a store with a gun at 18, they should be in prison 50 years later? Do we believe in throwing away human beings? Um, it doesn't mean that there may not be a time where we need some kind of secure detention for people who need secure detention or facing issues where they need other types of support. But why are we caging human beings for 30 and 40 and 50 years? And, you know, those are the kind of conversations I think the country has to have. Um, there has to be a kind of reimagining and reawakening on these issues. Kari, in the final few minutes we have with you, I wonder if we can shift gears a little and sure. ask if you would reflect with us a little on your own connection to your Jewish heritage and what you feel the Jewish community needs to know at this time, be thinking about this time as we seek to deepen our partnerships with those with whom we can do this work and succeed. Sure, I mean, as we all know, there, there are many different types of Jewish experience in this country and internationally. So to really answer that, I have to kind of talk a little bit about my family, so I'll, I'll kind of digress for a second. But, you know, my grandfather, came here as an immigrant uh, fleeing pogroms in what was Romania, now Moldova, it's, you know, depending on where the lines were, were drawn. Um, and he was a deeply committed communist uh, within, you know, several years of arriving here. He was incarcerated in the state of Pennsylvania for uh, advocating the overthrow of the United States government, which was false. It was really just that he said socialists should run for president, but that was seen as advocating the overthrow of the United States government. 
And that was his first kind of experience with uh, the fallacy of kind of America equality under the law. Um, soon after that, he became a leader in the American Communist Party. He fought in Spain in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and was a political commissar there. When he called, came back, he was called in front of HUAC and uh, refused to name names and was blacklisted. And so my mother was raised in a tiny enclave. She thought it was the world. She always references, you know, Adrian Rich's quote about that. Um, but she thought it was the world. But in reality, it was a tiny enclave in Greenwich Village of, you know, red diaper babies and communist Jews. And that was her community and her entire world. And so, you know, I was raised uh, deeply within that tradition of radical Jews who believe and fight for freedom and equality, um, who, because my grandfather was a communist, did not believe in religion, um, did not practice religion, but were deeply ethnically and identified as Jews. Um, and so that's, you know, been a central part of my family and, and my upbringing. And I feel deeply aligned and connected to that. And I think you know, when I do the work that I do, my grandfather was, you know, not formally educated, spoke five languages and was a leading organizer and recruiter because of uh, his ability to speak publicly and to connect with artists and activists. So whenever I do my work, I certainly think of him and his legacy and what he passed on to my mother, who's, you know, the author of 10 or 11 books. And her work has always been work that has focused on issues of gender and race and inequality both in fiction and in memoir, I mean, uh, nonfiction and in memoir. So all of that I feel in me all the time. And, you know, my immediate and extended family of artists, activists who kind of come out of that very particular uh, radical Jewish tradition. So I was not, you know, raised uh, with any connection to Hebrew school. I was raised on, you know, songs of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. So, you know, different type of experience in that way. Um, you know, when I think about what the Jewish community, um, you know, needs to take in this moment, uh, you know, uh, Rabbi Rachel Cowan, who I'm sure many of you know, was like an aunt to me and knew me since I was born. We were very, very close and she was on our board for many years until she passed away. She was a founding board member. And we talked so often about the intersection of spirituality and religion and activism. Um, and you know, I think that the best of the Jewish faith and the best of the Jewish tradition um, is to speak out for justice and to speak out against injustice. I think we're at a moment right now where we need allies. We need people who are really uh, speaking out bravely, uh, realizing that sometimes that speaking out will be speaking out against institutions or people who um, otherwise you feel connected to. Um, part of this essay that I wrote in Whiteness in America is, you know, really about the fact that, you know, the issue of racism in this country, the issue of white supremacy will never be responded to or cured by black people. Uh, it is the same way as, you know, sexism will never be cleared by women. Um, we need white people to engage, um, to counter these issues, to call people to task, um, and to really stand up, you know, bravely in this moment. And so, you know, I think that that's a part of the Jewish tradition. I hope that this is a moment when many Jews do that work um, and stand up. And so I think that, you know, this is a key moment for that. Kari, I know how busy you are, and it's clear from just the way you've shared with us in the last 20 minutes or so, what an important and compelling voice you are to so many, not the least the children that you work with 
And I am just so grateful that you've come to share your story, Bro Sissa's story, and to continue to motivate us to stand up, as you say, and to do the work together um, that we are destined and responsible to do. So I wish you strength. I wish you, as we say, chizuk, a, a sense of, of strengthening from being in the presence of people who so admire uh, what you do and are so committed to finding ways to partner and to do it together. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope that our worlds will continue to, to intersect. Right. Thank you for, for having me and allowing me to be in conversation with you this evening. And we will certainly be in touch and talk again. I wish Absolutely. everybody the best. All right. Absolutely. Thank, thank you so you. much. So I uh, just want to say I'm here this evening with my wife, uh, Catherine Eckstein, having accompanied someone uh, uh, closer than six feet in a while, or in the same room in a while. So we'll see how this goes.
just gave us the two of you together and you know words of promise that you sang to the children of our nation I have to say the way you and Dunn parent your extraordinarily beautiful Yuval there is so much to hope for thank you for bringing so much beauty and melody into our program tonight Catherine and Dunn thank you thank you thank you for having me in that essay that I mentioned earlier that Kari wrote recently. In his final paragraph, Kari wrote, Eric Garner's last words were, I can't breathe. George Floyd's last words were, I can't breathe. Kari writes, when I asked my father once what it was like to grow up in the 1940s and 50s in Southern segregation, a legally state-sanctioned and implemented racial caste system, he replied, it was like your dreams and opportunities were suffocated. It wasn't one act, but just a heavy weight all the time, always present, constricting you. It is the very air of America that we protest. It is everywhere. Breath is a powerful word in Hebrew. Nishima. It comes from the Hebrew word for soul or spirit, nishama. In the creation story, God breathed nishmat chayim, the breath of life, into the first human beings. We open our prayers every morning, expressing thanks for the restoration of our souls. Shehechazarta bi nishmati. We refer to our souls as our pure souls. Nishama shenatata bi tehorahi. The final verse of the entire book of Tehillim, of Psalms, reads, Kol ha that we're going to praise the Holy One with our entire spirit. A phrase that the rabbis reread as kol hanishima, with every breath, will praise the one who gave us life. One of the most dramatic experiences of breath is the one when new parents hold their own to hear the first breath of a newborn baby. And this image alone should remind us that breath is not conditioned by color or by any other factor. As my friend and colleague Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg reminds us, there is no concept, no jot or dust-sized shadow of a notion that there can exist people whose breath matters more or less than that of others. Breathing is, should be, must be equal. 
When a new life is born, hope for that new human being breathes an inexhaustible breath. And what we name that new person says everything about the dreams we have for them. Granting someone a name is a powerful act that can be abused, but it could also be ennobling. In our tradition, one's name links them to their history and unfolds for them their destiny. But it remains our responsibility to ensure that their name has meaning. Several years ago, I had a weekly or a study date with a colleague in New Jersey whose name was Cantor Israel Singer. And we'd get together once a week to explore the commentary of Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav. By the way, how funny is it that his name is Cantor Singer? It's probably not so funny to another colleague of mine who used to work in New Jersey whose name is Rabbi Ben Shul. Rabbi Shul. Okay, never mind. I'm not even going to mention my loyal friend, Dr. Sharp. But commenting on the name Yitzchak for Abraham and Sarah's son, Rabbi Nachman offers an incredible insight, both for its reading into Avraham's life and its powerful challenge to our own. Avraham and Sarah's son was called Yitzchak from the Hebrew tzchok, meaning laughter, because Rabbi Nachman said his birth was cause for a major celebration, because Isaac was the very first child born into Kedushat Yisrael, the holiness of Israel. Here, Abraham had embarked on a journey to bring the message of Judaism, of belief in the oneness of the divine and the ethical implications of that belief out into the world. He was to found a family that was to become a nation that was to bring blessing to the entire human family. He was to lay down roots in a land that would become, that is still becoming, a beacon of freedom, justice, and peace. But this was a message, this was a framework which he himself hadn't been born into. He had to separate himself from the traditions of his parents in order to follow this call of his heart and his soul. I'm sure the story of Abraham's spiritual awakening is a core myth for Judaism, but the birth of his son Yitzchak takes it to a new level. With Yitzchak's birth, for the very first time, a generation was born into the story, born into the covenant. For the first time, that spiritual journey wasn't something that an individual had to undertake for themselves but it was one bequeathed to them from the moment of their first breath. And more, Rabbi Nachman said, the arrival of the first child born into the already established holiness of the covenant sealed the internal chain of Jewish continuity as one generation after another would from then on be able to transmit that heritage that would be given to them at their birth and to the next generation at their birth without interruption because they had succeeded. And because of this, Avraham's son's birth was cause for a great party and joyous laughter, and so he was named Yitzchak. But now think of our own world. Imagine a generation of children born into a world where in the covenant of peace and of harmony and justice has already been sealed. Listen to the first breaths of their souls ringing in the ears of parents who dream for their children, dreams that are already a reality. What would it feel like to know the battle has been won and to revel in that achievement with holy joy and sacred laughter? We're not there yet, of course, but we have all the resources to make it happen. And among the most effective are those our own children present, today's youth. I'll share with you Kari's own words from an essay he wrote two and a half years ago. We will win, he said in the end because humanity and justice are on our side, because young people are driving a change in ideals, 
Great damage will be done to many people during this war we find ourselves in, but we will win. These aren't words of didactic puffery and frivolous hopefulness. It's not my nature, he said. But instead, I write them from a place of cold, calculated optimism. We, those who fight for a more humane world, must wrap ourselves in this optimism. We will win, he wrote, because demographics are with us. As the nation becomes increasingly people of color, younger, diverse, more inclusive. We will win because we will organize, agitate, push back on lies and misinformation, take to the streets, vote, litigate, create tough art, and speak out. We will support one another, break down silos, define our national narrative and embrace common struggles of people everywhere, for their struggles are our own. We will win because the fate of this nation is in our hands, he wrote. Generations have been lost to hate, but love? Love, he wrote, is a righteous love for humanity, a love for inclusiveness of all people. That love will win. And when this kind of love is combined with fierce, unyielding action, then hate doesn't stand a chance. And so, yes, he wrote, we will win. And I will add to his words that not only will we win, but we will be overjoyed. And we will laugh and we will cry tears of joy and we will stand proudly alongside our youth. And together we will breathe, all of us. Kol hanishama tahalolia. Our entire spirit will praise the one. Kol hanishima tahalolia. Every breath of every breathing person will praise the one who gave us life. And in the meantime, we'll keep saying the names. Amongst them, Trayvon, Eric, Michael, Tamir, Freddie, Philando, Sandra, Ahmad. Brianna, George, Richard, until Yitzchak is born again. President Obama accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, he spoke, the, the, he spoke these words. The one rule that lies at the heart of every major religion is that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Adhering to this law of love has always been the core struggle of human nature. But we don't have to think that human nature is perfect for us to still reach for those ideals that will make the world a better place. Let us reach for the world that ought to be that spark of the divine that still stirs within each of our souls. It's in these last moments of our time together every week that we offer a prayer, a modern expression, words of hope for humanity. Rabbi Laura Kaplan reminds us that when we turn to words of prayer, we have to remember that no prayer of any worth can be said divorced from our belief in the power of tshuva, the power of repentance. For our prayers, for any prayer, to have the slightest chance of coming true, we have to believe that individuals can reflect, can repent, and can change. And so can a city, so can a country, a species, a world. Her choice of words for a prayer a prayer for peace is drawn from the words of the fictional Captain John Sheridan of the space station Babylon 5. Words penned by J.M. Straczynski. Words that I think are especially resonant now 
certainly tonight in what we've shared. And they go as follows. In the last few years, we've stumbled. We've stumbled at peace and we've stumbled at justice. And when you stumble a lot, you start looking at your feet. And we have to make people lift their eyes back to the horizon of the line of ancestors behind us saying, make my life have meaning. And we have to see our inheritors standing before us saying, create the world that we will live in. express our gratitude to Kari Lazar White for joining us tonight and for sharing with us his passion, his convictions, his commitments, stories of the kids whose lives he's changed and who have changed his life. And I hope that all of us feel inspired and motivated to find our ways to partner with those with whom we must and can build this world from love. Finally, I invite you to join us next week when, in honor of Pride Month, we'll be welcoming a guest from the trans-Jewish community. I invite you also to join us tomorrow night for my class in jurisprudence. 
on contemporary halakha. We're going to be exploring the need for egalitarian rituals of divorce and try to understand why we're still waiting for them and what is on the horizon. If you don't have details for that class, please feel free to email me, rabbi at shaarcommunities.org, and we'll share the Zoom info. Don, thank you so much again for your incredibly beautiful music, for sharing with us your gifted wife, and for uplifting us um, in, in the way that you do that no one else can. Thank you so much. We're going to close with a nigun as we wish each other many times. So everyone, good night. Stay safe, stay well, stay inspired. Love you all.